Welcome to Crescent City Crime, dear listeners. I'm Tracy. And I'm Brian. It is October. It is spooky season. Yes. It is. <laughs> Was that your attempt at an evil laugh? It's uh, one of my evil laughs. Uh, probably my most maniacal laugh of all. Unfortunately, hit the cutting room floor. And that was when B.J. Novak himself, episode one of the premise, the episode that was titled The Social Justice Sex Tape, for the FX show called The Premise, uh, streamable, streamable on Hulu, I believe. Uh, B.J. Novak had the entire jury, of which I was a member, laugh. For a joke that was edited from the episode, unfortunately. And I gave a very maniacal laugh, and uh, which drew a bunch of interesting looks, including the actress who played the prosecutor in the episode, gave me a very bizarre look. And B.J. Novak himself said, that's a great laugh. Unfortunately, it didn't make it into the episode. I guess it wasn't great enough. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, essentially the deal was like the the, uh, the so-called sex tape that was evidence in the trial. Um, the th- This line was also edited out when uh, the foreman of the jury says, uh, that was great, can we see it again? And then the judge says, uh, a- after the trial, as a reward. And the deal was after the trial was over, the judge says, as promised... You'll, 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 you get to see the sex tape again, and they, sh- and they show it, and we all bust out laughing. And the, the witness whose sex tape this is, I won't say why this is required as evidence in this trial, is, of course, completely humiliated all over again. You know. <laughs> it, well, I mean, it, it was a very funny episode. That one and the... Well, I, I don't want to say the name of the other one on this episode because we do try to be as family friendly as possible. Uh, but I think it was the final episode of the premise was quite hilarious as well. Yeah, it was also that, and that was another episode that was filmed in New Orleans. Ah, okay. Yep. Well, Everybody who is listening to this, if you just happen to stumble upon this podcast and you don't know who the heck we are, we are, of course, Tracy and Brian, and this is our podcast. Generally, we do talk about true crime, but because it is spooky season, we are going to be talking about more than just true crime. Last year for... October, we did, I think, a a pretty nice mix of local lores and uh, uh, Axe Murder, uh, Clementine Barnabet, which uh, I really did enjoy doing those episodes. But, you know, there's more than just folklore from Louisiana. There's more than just ghost stories from New Orleans. Although, New Orleans being one of the oldest cities in the entire country... As New Orleans is older than the country itself, it is. Uh, there is quite a bit of haunted history here, as there's quite a few very old buildings here, and there have been quite a few tragedies here. 
there is, but what if I told you, Brian, that there was also tragedy in Alabama? But and that wouldn't surprise me at all. No, it would not. It's um, it's fun. It's interesting how you mentioned Alabama, you know, having its share of tragedies, and I mentioned about how New Orleans having more than its share of tragedies. An interesting contrast between Alabama and New Orleans is that Alabama saw the. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, Alabama being a state, New Orleans being a state. Alabama saw many of the horrors of the American Civil War. That they did. And New Orleans was pretty much spared the horrors of the American Civil War, thankfully, because uh, who knows, maybe the French Quarter wouldn't exist, right, to the day if New Orleans would have received, say, the same treatment as Atlanta. Perhaps. But um, this story is post-Civil War. It was, uh, you know, after the Civil War, of course, the South faced immense challenges in rebuilding the economy and infrastructure for various reasons. But there was a glimmer of hope when rich coal and ore reserves were discovered in rural Alabama. This discovery ignited a rapid wave of development and prosperity, and it transformed the area into what would become in what would become Birmingham and this earned it the nickname the Magic City because it seemed to just grow overnight. Did you know that? Um, come to think of it yes now now I remember. Now you yeah, remember. I, okay. I, I, had, I had heard of that and it was some histor- some historians early on were going back several decades cited it as evidence of the South rising again, and yes, economically, yes, the, economically the South did rise again from the ashes of the, you know, the the horrible uh, Civil War, the greatest tra- tragedy this this country ever faced, uh, because it, it it tore the South apart. It it did, but and, but but that's another yes that yes. that's another horror for another time. Yes, <laughs> yes, but but it's um. Uh, it's definitely linked, and uh, you know many of the post-Civil War horrors in the South are, you know, caused by these, you know scars of the American Civil War. It did. Uh, Colonel James Withers Sloss was one of the founders of Birmingham. He was a visionary, and he played a pivotal role in the city's development. He was instrumental in promoting railroad expansion, and he was a driving force behind the Pratt Coke and Coal Company, which was a trailblazing enterprise, and Birmingham was one of the city's first manufacturers. In 1880, Colonel Sloss embarked on a new venture. He established his very own company, the Sloss Furnace Company. His vision for industrial progress led to the enforcement of a monumental project. This was Birmingham's, or, you know, what they did in this furnace company was that they manufactured ore. And the drums to melt vats of ore are massive. Have you ever seen a picture or a video of any of these, Brian? Uh, 
it's it's quite a sight to behold. They're they're huge. Mm-hmm. And it's <laughs> it and you know working working in that business is very dangerous. It is very dangerous. You're right. This endeavor unfolded on fifty acres of land, so it's a massive. You need a lot of room to do this. You need a lot yeah. of room to do this. Mm-hmm. The construction was oversaw by Harry Hargreaves, who was an engineer, and he had honed his craft under the tutelage of the English inventor Thomas Whitwell. Together, they embarked on the construction of the what they call Whitwell-type furnaces. So Whitwell was the one who invented the type of furnace that was necessary to melt down iron. Okay. So so this was the person who invented that. The furnaces were 60 feet in height and 18 feet in diameter. Yes, that makes them rather precarious. And they were first blasted, like their very first time that these things were put into use was 1882. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. The Industrial Revolution was in full swing. Full swing. Yes, and, well, you you, you know, they, the, 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 the industrialists, you know, really looked out for the safety of their employees. Oh, right? sure they did. Yes, Everywhere. Yes. OSHA, baby. Yeah, yeah. And they pioneering uh, efforts. They were so wor- they were so concerned about the children, you know, the child workers. No. Yeah. Oh, especially them. Yeah, they, they, they tried their best not to work the child workers any more than what, twelve to sixteen hours a day. No more than that. You they know. paid them well too. Oh yes, it's exceptionally well, and just provided for them, and you know, provided for the general welfare. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but in the first year, this furnace produced twenty-four thousand tons of high-quality iron, and this marked a milestone in Birmingham's industrial ascent. Between 1882 and 1971, Birmingham's Sloss Furnace played a pivotal role in the transformation. The furnaces turned the abundant coal and ore from the surrounding area into the high-quality steel that would lay the foundation for the Industrial Revolution. From towering skyscrapers in New York City to the assembly lines of automobiles in Detroit, America came to depend on Birmingham and Sloss furnaces as vital sources of materials, which of course was essential for the production of thousands of products that fueled the nation's growth. And you know, also with things like skyscrapers and automobiles come jobs. So everybody was working. But of course, as Brian pointed out, they were working in dangerous conditions. Yes, I, I mean, the pre-Civil War area, post-era, post-Civil War era, uh, the an age of rapid industrialism in the United States in particular, working conditions were horrible for everyone, whether you were a, sec, a, a second generation or a third generation or fourth generation American or whether you were an immigrant worker or 
an indentured service, uh, an indentured servitude person or a slave. Working conditions were horrible. Yes, no matter no matter no matter who you were. Yes, and I always want everybody to remember that safety regulations. You know the the things that might save your life someday. Uh, those are written in blood. Yes, many people suffered death and dismemberment in order to establish a safe workplace. The, the, the safety that many of us take for granted today was, yes, as Tracy said, paid for in blood. Yes. And in the early 1900s, a dark figure loomed over Sloss Furnace. James Slag Wormwood was the foreman of the graveyard shift. And he oversaw the relentless operation during the period between sunset and sunrise. And this shift demanded the labor of nearly 150 workers who constantly kept the furnace fed with coal. Just can be backbreaking work. I mean, it was not fun. No, constantly shoveling coal into a furnace and hoping that you don't get hit with any hot lead. Mm-hmm. Throughout the summer months, the temperatures within the plant would soar to more than 120 degrees. Yeah, so you're also... you're. You're working under those extreme temperatures, and there probably is not uh, adequate water provided for you, or adequate breaks, water breaks. There's and, certainly no Gatorade or Powerade. And there is definitely not a thing like uh, cooling wraps or uh, air conditioning, any of those things. Nope. We're not, nope, nope none of those things. Probably not even any fans. No, no, probably not. And also, I'm sure that there's a lot of people who are listening to, to this who can relate that if you've ever had to work overnight, you might not have the best sleep schedule. You might feel tired quite often because your, your circadian rhythm is not exactly attuned to being up all night. And trying to sleep during the day. It's not that, it's not as easy as some people would like to think it is. For some people, it is easy. For some people, it's not. And of course, if it was not easy, you could just simply bring this concern up to your your shop foreman, right? Who will be very empathetic towards you, you know, and help you, right? I'm sure he'd give you an extra day off. Yeah, yeah. You know, because they were, they were just so kind to laborers back then. Yeah. Yeah. So this, you know, sleep deprivation, extreme heat, and, you know... I, I don't even think they knew what HR was back then. Probably not. No. <laughs> but these, but the, you know, these conditions were terrible. And, of course, this is the type of job that preyed upon the most desperate of workers. You know, you still needed to feed your family. Yeah, the, the undereducated and uneducated and, of course, uh, immigrants. 
And speaking of, most of these workers were recently arrived immigrants. And they had little choice but to live in cramped quarters that were situated right on the furnace site. So you couldn't even really get away from your work. You kind of lived on your job site. Yeah, and so you were, con- and you were constantly breathing in these, the, you know, the, this hazardous smoke. Yes, you were. Yeah. 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 So that, that's, uh, that doesn't exactly increase your lifespan. Now, Wormwood was always, he always wanted to impress his supervisors. So he pushed his workers to take even more risk. And this compelled, you know, to get them to accelerate production. And during his reign, a staggering 47 workers met their tragic end, which was a death toll 10 times higher than any other shift in the furnace's history. And that really says something. That, 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 that's, that's, cause that's a uh, horrendously bad safety record. Horrendously bad safety record. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Pete. Now, uh, like, like these days, okay, it's 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 in the shipping business, okay. It's well known that Amazon warehouses have a much higher uh, a- accident occurrence rate than their FedEx or UPS counterparts. Is it because much higher? They're larger. Like more people on oh, the... Oh, there, there's, there's a variety of causes. Uh, one of the more recent causes has been the robotics that were supposed to make things safer. But uh, certain kinds of, I would say, unethical supervisors decided to use the, the robots to push the workers harder. So, the you know, the more spirited and energetic of the workers compete against the robots. What? Okay, and you end up getting injured. Oh, that's crazy. Th- th- this is this is not a joke. The U.S. Department, uh, well, OSHA has been looking into this mm, okay. over the last couple of years. Um. So. So yes, by, uh, by comparison, okay. Um. You know, there's still there's still these challenge these safety challenges in the workplace. Even still, that that yes. that are that are created by unscrupulous slave drivers. Mm. Even even today, okay. So whereas, of course, it's that's not as bad as this. You know, 47, 47 people dead on one shift. Okay, which that that hasn't happened at the Amazon warehouses. Okay. But, it, but people know, they, are still getting injured, right? But there, you know, there's a perspective on where we've been and where we are now. Some of the challenges are the same, and uh, the ethics of some industrialists haven't haven't changed that much. Mm. Well, countless others suffered debilitating injuries due to accidents and even an explosion. In 1888, which left six workers permanently blinded. So that you know, it, it, I don't. At least I don't think Amazon is blinded. No, I, 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 right? I haven't heard of any instances of people being permanently blinded working at the Amazon mm-hmm. warehouses. Fortunately, so yeah, some perspective. Yes, things that working conditions have improved drastically. 
And, and that, that's something everyone should appreciate uh, because the... Uh, I, I fear that we've only discussed the lighter side mm. of rab- the rabid industrialism of the late 1800s. Well... Like you, like you mentioned earlier, there were no breaks, there were no holidays, there was no days off. You didn't get days off. Yeah, there, there were simply no, there weren't any regulations uh, regarding anything to benefit to benefit the workers back then. You were just simply relying upon the grace of God and the gracious. The gracious nature of your employer, mm-hmm. which what whose objective back then was just simply to get out of you as much as they could force out of you physically and mentally, and if something terrible happened to you, there were pl- there was plenty of immigrant labor to replace you with. Well, in this case, there was a bit of poetic justice. James Slag Wormwood met his demise atop the highest blast furnace. He lost his footing and plunged into the pool of molten iron ore and uh, disintegrated kind of like Gollum in, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Or or, or uh, the Terminator in Terminator 2. Yeah, except he didn't give a thumbs up. Yeah, no, and he didn't get to see I hate uh, I hate you like Anakin did in episode three. Oh, Star Wars episode three either. We had a, we had a movie trifecta. Yes, we did. <laughs> yep. So it, yeah, it appears of poetic justice there. And of course, there was nothing left of his body. And and I'm going to bet he wasn't missed. Probably not, but. In the investigation that followed, they did try to figure out how exactly he fell. They thought that maybe he became dizzy because of the methane gas generated by the furnace. But they had also, the workers had also said that he had never ventured in, like, into this part of the furnace before. So they don't know why he would have been all the way up there. So, who knows what compelled him to do this, but something something got him to do it, and he died as a result. Now, speculation ran all across the community. I bet suicide was among the speculation. Well, actually, some thought that the laborers, uh, you know, driven to their breaking point by his cruelty had finally taken matters into their own hands, which, if if they did, I wouldn't blame them. But even though these rumors swept the town and there was a lot of, dark, of, of suspicion, no workers were ever brought to trial and the truth just remains buried to this day. But in the aftermath of this tragedy... Sloss Industries decided to discontinue the graveyard shift. They cited numerous reports of accidents and the occurrence of strange incidents that had begun to plague the site. And they also acknowledged a sharp decline in seal production. 
And as the years passed, the legend of slag wormwood continued to grow, and this cast a shadow over the furnace itself. Workers spoke of an unnatural presence that seemed to permeate the entire work site, which left everybody with an unshakable sense of dread. In 1926, a night watchman encountered a malevolent force firsthand. He suffered injuries after an unseen entity allegedly pushed him from behind and barked angry commands in a deep, otherworldly voice, ordering him to get back to work. But upon investigation, he found no sign of a living person. In 1947, there was a disturbing incident that left three supervisors bewildered and terrified. They were discovered unconscious, locked inside the small boiler room, and none of them could provide an actual explanation for their ordeal, except for a shared recollection of a man with horribly burned skin who had angrily demanded that they push some steel. But the most creepy story out of all this happened in 1971. This was on the eve of the plant's closure. Samuel Samuel Blumenthal, he was a sloth night watchman, took a final stroll through the facility. And what he encountered defied all reason and left him traumatized. He described it simply as evil a grotesque entity that seemed to be a twisted fusion of a man and a demon. This monstrous apparition attempted to forcibly propel him up a flight of stairs, and when Blumenthal resisted, the creature unleashed a savage, unrelenting assault, pummeling him with its fists. Upon medical examination by Dr. Jack Barlow, Blumenthal's body was found to be covered in severe burns. He did succumb to his injuries before he ever had a chance to, to, I mean, he's never had a chance to recover. And Birmingham police records bear witness to more than 100 documented reports of suspected paranormal activity at Sloss Furnaces. These reports span a spectrum of phenomena from inexplicable events like steam whistles mysteriously sounding on their own to terrifying sightings and, in some instances, physical assaults. It is interesting to note that the majority of these encounters have occurred during the months of September and October and on and only at nighttime. While some skeptics dismiss these occurrences as Halloween hoaxes, others remain true believers that these events are manifestations of the relentless spirit of the sadistic foreman slag who forever haunts the, haunts the grim and storied halls of Sloss Furnaces. The legend of slag and the eerie occurrences at the furnace did not fade into obscurity with time. Instead, they still persist, they have intensified, and they have even drawn the attention of paranormal investigators. In 1988, the Center for, for Paranormal Events in St. Petersburg, Florida, conducted a study at Sloss Furnaces during the month of May. Although no extraordinary events transpired during the study, several team members, including two psychics, were profoundly affected. They asserted that the site, owing to its history of violent disregard for loss of life, should 
should be is a place that's teeming with restless souls. In the year 2000, a revisit from the paranormal team of Fox's scariest places concluded that Sloss Furnaces had one of the highest levels of unnatural energy that they had ever encountered. And in 2002, a skeptical investigative team from CBS embarked on their own inquiry. They departed from the site rattled and firmly convinced of its haunted nature, and they've even captured compelling footage that can be viewed on their website. And the Alabama Foundation for Paranormal Research conducted an investigation in 2003 and affirmed that Sloss is a hot spot for paranormal activity. They relied on scientific methods and a rigorous approach and concluded that unexplainable energies energies pervaded the site. Their findings reinforced the notion that Sloss Furnaces is one of the most paranormal activity-ridden locations that's ever been scrutinized. And on October the 4th of 2003, a crew member named Josh Thomas, who had worked at Sloss for many years, suddenly burst into flames after encountering a strange shape. He suffered severe burns covering his body and was rushed to the hospital. And this incident occurred almost 32 years after the night of Samuel Blumenthal's attack in 1971. And there's been more paranormal investigations throughout the years. The most recent one uh, that I could find was 2014. The TAPS team from Ghost Hunters paid a visit and recorded absolutely phenomenal footage unequivocally substantiating the presence of spiritual activity at Sloss Furnaces. And they have since returned to gather more evidence. So there's uh, numerous documentation of ghost sightings, paranormal activity, all these things. Uh, the, the furnace itself is on the National Registrar of Historic Places, so it's not going to be torn down. Like It's still there. Yes, it, it's, uh, it's a historic site, and apparently there's very likely poltergeists. Poltergeists, dead body, or, or the spirits of the dead, yes. uh, a, an angry supervisor. Pine polster, poltergeists are created by extreme stress, suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, people, people suffered there, people died there. You know, her, these her people in back during the period suffered horrendous burns, and it's it's uh, it's scary that people have since suffered horrendous burns with no explanation whatsoever. No explanation whatsoever, and this is a place I'm going to stay the heck away from. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I. Would. I'm not going there. That's that's. I mean, come to think of it, of all the haunted places I have heard of, many of whom, which I've, you know, probably forgotten about, uh, I don't seem to remember any of these haunted places uh, inflicting second and third degree burns on people. No. Uh, yeah, that is, that is horrendous. Yeah. Uh, I can't, I, can you think of any place in New Orleans where people suffered so horrendously I, or died visiting a haunted place? Not visiting a haunted place, no. 
I like to think that the ghosts in New Orleans are just used to the tourists. Yeah. Oh, yes. Apparently so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some the smaller hotels in the city, just to name one type of haunted place, have you know, are filled with ghosts. Filled with ghosts. I used to work at a haunted hotel, and I will say that whatever was in that hotel, whatever was haunting that place, absolutely wanted everybody to know that it was there. It would do things like mess with the fire alarms. It would uh, call the front desk from rooms that were checked out. That's happened a few times. It's quite That was quite spooky. Um, but, you know, nothing harmful, just more annoying. Yeah, yeah, that was originally a, a firehouse. Well, actually, the part that I think... So, yes, first of all, you are correct. Part of the hotel was the first firehouse in New Orleans. But the other part of the hotel that was a shipping warehouse, um, I think that there was something going on in that part of the hotel that was different from whatever was in the firehouse part of the hotel. Because it was the warehouse part of the hotel that I that seemed to have the most activity. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. I do believe that firehouse was uh, did respond to the famous French Quarter fire. Uh, pro- well, one yeah. of them at least, because there was more than one French Quarter fire. Yeah. You know. Yes. So. Next week, we are going to talk about another Southern haunting. And this is a place that I have personally gone to. We're going to be talking about the Bell Witch of Tennessee. Oh, right. Yeah, we, we did, didn't we visit... The cave. The cave, yes. And it was that was a gorgeous place to visit, too. It really was. It, it sure was. Even if you know, even if you don't encounter any spirits there, uh, I'm one of those people that does not sense the presence of spirits or ghosts. Mm. Uh, I'm pr- I'm pretty I'm pretty sure of that, and reason why I'm I'm very sure of that is because the. The house I grew up in was built on the property of a house that burned to the ground. A woman died, and my grandmother, both of my aunts, and my my mother and my sister at one period, one time or another, all saw the ghost of this woman in a white dress, who died upon that site, and I was the only. Myself and my grandfather, both of us men, of course, were the only people who lived there who didn't see this ghost at one time or another. Um, you know, pretty much I was I was oblivious to her presence. I did not sense her presence whatsoever or see her ever, no matter how hard I tried no matter how hard there were times I even tried to speak to the ghost and I received absolutely no response and I probably call myself fortunate because uh, 
my grandmother, my mother in particular, were really spooked by this ghost. Uh, I mean, imagine sleeping and then being awakened from something touching your feet and you wake up and you see this oh no you see this ghost you see this woman in a white dress hovering over you okay touching your feet that, that happened to my mother okay no. um so and, you know all these women who lived in this house they, they're not made they didn't make this up no well if it if it makes you feel any better I think I mean well I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but I did grow up in a haunted house. Uh, the, my my parents, when they bought the house, they had bought it from some people, and their son uh, unalived himself in the house. Okay. And I'm pretty sure that that's who I used to see, because I remember kind of seeing like this figure walk through the hallway and you know when my dad like he would be putting me to bed and I would just kind of look past him and I would say dad who's that who's that guy and my dad would not know what I was talking about and there was some paranormal activity in that house as well Nothing too intense, but again, just something that definitely made its presence known at times. I do think that most spirits are harmless. I mean, if they, you know, because I mean, when you think about it, you know, in if, if you buy a house from somebody, chances are, the, old, I mean, the older that house is, the more history is going to be behind it. Chances are somebody who has owned it has died. Maybe not in the house, but but maybe they have but they have died, but maybe they really love that house and they don't want to truly leave it. And that that is entirely a possibility. So, and if you know, and, and if that is the case, then you don't have. Um, I'm sorry. You you will have hauntings, and if these ghosts were violent, nobody would buy houses. <laughs> Yes, yes. Many, and it's quite possible that many the residents of these houses don't even notice these spirits. Well, in the same sense that if I if I hadn't been told about this mysterious woman in a white dress, I wouldn't have known a hint nor holler. Hmm. I because me personally, I saw absolutely no evidence of her existence whatsoever. That didn't mean she doesn't exist. It's just simple. For some bizarre reason, I'm not attuned to it. I may not be attuned to the presence of spirits at all. Right. Because I don't believe I've sensed the presence of any spirits ever, no matter where I've gone. You know, you you might want to be careful when you say things like that. Because every time, again, going back to when I worked at the hotel... Anytime I would mention that ghost, if I would mention anything that went on, the ghost would know I was talking about it and it would make its presence known. (laughs) (laughs) So you might want to be careful about what you say because the ghosts are always listening to you and they're always watching you even when you're in the shower. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, well, you know. 
You're not going to hide yourself from the ghost while you're taking a shower. All right, everybody. We're going to wrap it up for this week. Make sure that you check us out on all of the social medias. It will be linked in the show notes as usual. If you are listening to this on YouTube, make sure that you like this video. Maybe subscribe to the channel. And, of course, we should have said this at the top, but make sure that you tell everybody about us. Make sure that you tell your friends. Make sure that you tell Dracula and Frankenstein and the Swamp Monster, too. Yes. And tell your enemies. Especially your enemies. And tell the ghosts about us, too. Yes, tell all the ghosts about us. Tell all the ghosts about us. All right, everybody. Next week, we will be... No, I already said we were talking about next week. All right. Until next week, everybody, be safe, be kind. Remember that we're all human beings. Don't take candy from strangers. And remember, everyone, the defendant who acts as his own lawyer has a ghoul for a client. <laughs>